be sure you have your cup of coffee, folks, and get comfortable because this conversation is a journey back through time into the 1940s. My special guest, Edward Beganji, author of The Gift Best Given, is my guest today, and you're not going to want to miss this one, folks. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Hello, hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Let Fear Bounce. This is your host, Kim Lingling, and I am so happy that you're spending just a small part of your day with myself and my special guest today, Edward Deganji. He is an author of a recently published book called The Gift Best Given, and it's a memoir. And I personally, I love the title of that. Makes you want to pick it up and read it and see what it's about. But Ed, he is a retired customer service executive, and he was born and raised in New York City, and he currently resides now in North Carolina with his wife. He is an author of published nonfiction articles as well as many short stories. He's also a popular book club presenter and podcast guest. And I'm so glad that you're my guest today, Ed. So welcome to Let Fear Bounce. Well, thank you. I'm glad to be your guest. It's great to be here. Now, when we had first chatted beforehand, before today, and you had given me the title of your book, The, the Gift Best Given, my mind went so many different directions because it's actually it's a beautiful title so i do want to say that right up front it's a beautiful title and it just gives me a mental picture of gentleness but then when i was reading into and looking more into the book it was it went a little bit different direction than what my mind did so if you could briefly give us give us a little bit of background on how you began this journey and writing this book well, sure. The book is a story of my late adulthood search for the woman who had placed me for adoption at the time of my birth. And I waited until I was 69 years old to begin the search. And that was a, that was a product of having had what was a, just a beautiful childhood and knowing my adoptive parents as the only parents I ever really knew. And so I, I really felt no need, but in the winter of 2017, we were up in New Jersey and my mother-in-law had passed away the previous summer. My father-in-law had passed away just the month before and we were up there to do an internment. And while we were there, we stopped at another cemetery, which is nearby and it was where the family of my adoptive mother was all buried. And I was standing over the, the gravestone of my adoptive grandparents. And it's, you know, maybe it's a, you become more conscious of, of mortality as you get older, especially under circumstances like, like those. And, and as I stood there, I said, well, it'd be, it would be really interesting to know more about their story. And I knew they were Ukrainian. I knew they had come to the United States someplace prior to the turn of the century. And yeah, so when we got back to North Carolina, I went to the library and I used their edition of Ancestry.com and took the, you know, took what I knew about them and plugged it in there. And very, very quickly just was, there was a cascade of information that came to me. And I sat and I thought, and you know, I, I always knew I was adopted, but as I said, I'd never paid too much attention to it, but I 
I suddenly said, if it's this easy to find information about them, what could I possibly find out about where I really came from biologically? And over the years, probably once a year, I would think about, gee, I wonder who my birth mother was. Always made the assumption that she was a high school girl who, you know, who got pregnant unexpectedly and had to, was forced to give up the child. Uh, rarely thought about who my father might have been, but when I did, I assumed he was the guy who pumped gas at the local gas station. And, you know, so I, I had an advantage in my search when I began it in that my adoption was privately arranged. And therefore my adoptive parents had kept a copy of my adoption decree. And I had looked at it twice when I was very, very young and just put it away and never spoke of it. But I knew that there were some signatures on it, those of my adoptive parents, those of my parents' attorney. And there was one other signature that, uh, you know, at that point I understood could only have been one person, my biological mother. So I, I went home from the library, got that name, wrote it down on an index card and went back to the library and plugged it in. And that's, you know, that's where this whole thing really, really started. So what were you feeling when, when you realized that uh, that other name on that paperwork was more than likely your biological mother, of course, and you decided to start that search. What is it that you were feeling, especially at the age of 69 or older, I guess maybe by this time, when you thought, okay, I'm really gonna do this now. I'm, I'm gonna search for my mom. Well, you know, I think it, in large part, it was really an exercise in curiosity, just to see, could I find any information and will it confirm what I always thought was the case? I, I would have to admit there's some small piece of trepidation there and, you know, maybe you find out something you didn't want to know. And, you know, when I plugged in that name and I pressed that enter button, it was, I've said in the book, I think it was like looking in through the window at a family that, that didn't know they were being watched. I just felt like I was poking my head in and, and I found out so much so quickly. So give us a little bit about what it is that you found out about her and if, if you were surprised by any of it at all. Oh, I was very surprised. I was extremely surprised. As I said, I pressed that enter button and there was a screen full of information. And for some reason, I clicked on the entry for a visa application for her traveling from Miami to Rio de Janeiro less than a year after I was born. And I could just not figure out what that was about. And when it opened up, it was all written in Portuguese, <laughs> which, which really was not, the, not a great help, but it gave me enough that I could confirm where she came from. And it was very, very close to where I grew up. It gave me her age. I could sort of back into that. And I found out that she was not a high school girl. She was 23 years old when I was born. And it listed her occupation as an artista. And that was kind of the, the, the curious piece. I didn't, could only speculate about what, you know, what kind of artista she might've been. But, you know, probably the biggest piece out of there was there was a picture of her, you know, a passport photo. And yes, yeah, so from the first for the first time, I'm I'm sitting in a library and I'm I'm face to face with my birth mother. 
That had to have been something. You know, just you had said, you know, a little bit of trepidation, a little bit of fear going into it. But then also, like you were looking in the window at a family, you know, just kind of peeking in at someone you didn't really know. So when you saw her face for the first time, what was that like? Well, I, I think you look at that and you say, okay, what do I see myself there? And, you know, honestly, my wife is very good at that. She could look at any picture and see a face there. I, I didn't see it. I, I really didn't. But I, I, I sent that photograph home via email. And when I got home, I showed it to my wife. I said, would you like to see a picture of my mother? And she said, we've got all sorts of pictures of your mother. And I said, no, this is my birth mother. And her first reaction was, wow, that looks just like James. And James is our son. Oh, and, interesting. Yeah. And I still look at it and say, I don't know. I'm not sure I 100% see it. But yeah, to a degree. So as an artiste, I'm assuming that you did a little more delving into her background. What type of artista was she? Because now my curiosity is... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, you know, if I had found out that she was the high school girl I thought she was, I probably would have shut down the computer and gone home. <laughs> but when I saw the age and when I saw the travel to Rio and I saw the occupation, I said, no, there's more to this story. And and I it took some time to sort it out and to really find out what she was and it took the kindness of a number of people who I didn't know, but I made contact with. And I found out that my mother had been a celebrity ice performer in the ice skating shows in the 1940s and the 1950s. Wow, and that's fascinating. It was. And she, you know, she departed home at the age of 17. And she departed home in New York City and traveled alone by train to go to Vancouver, British Columbia to join an ice skating troupe there. And, you know, she was, she just skated in the line. She was, you know, the equivalent of a backup singer for a, for a rock band. And over the years, you know, as her career moved forward, it just, her, her role became increasingly important and increasingly prominent. By 1947, she was a featured performer with a group called Ice Follies. And Ice Follies wintered or summered over every year in San Francisco. And from June until the first part of September, they would practice their coming season show. And in the afternoon and the evening, they would do the current season for paid crowds. And while she was out there, she, she became engaged in a summer romance and, and left San Francisco in September of 1947 not realizing she was pregnant. And then a couple of months later, obviously, it, beca it became evident. If you think about it, in that time frame, for a young woman to be traveling on her own and, you know, heading out on her own to start her own life and her own Absolutely. career, it's almost unheard of at that time. Yeah, and I, it's, it's interesting in that, you know, she was a very independent person and I... And she was allowed to do that. I think the thought of, you know, of a single girl of 17 leaving New York to go to Vancouver by train today is probably more scary than it was in 1942. You know, but still, you know, it was in the midst of World War II and 
you know, she got from New York to Chicago Union Station, sort of managed her time there, got on another train and and continued that journey. And it's essentially a four day train trip. You know, that's so pretty was, brave. That's pretty darn was, brave. It was very brave. And but that that was her nature, I found. She was that's... very brave, very independent, very, very focused. So did you find anything? Did she ever get married and have other children? She did. You know, I, I ultimately was able to, to learn much more about her and a great deal. After I was born, traveled, she went to Rio to travel with a group called Ice Vogues. And they spent about six months in South America, came back, spent a little bit of time at home, and then went and spent almost a year in Europe touring. And I've got some video of her performing in Paris in 1950, which is just, it's a real treasure. It's just scratchy old black and white, you know, 16 millimeter film, but it's, it's quite impressive. Uh, she then came back, joined Holiday on Ice and met the man who had become her husband in 1954. They married in 1955, both of them were performers. And by 1956, they had their first child, a son. And two years later, a second child, also a son. And I'm, yeah, I'm in close contact with that first son. The second one passed away very unfortunately, yeah, under very unfortunate circumstances. But I've, you know, I've, I've kept close contact with the first one who at first just could not wrap his head around the fact that he had a half brother. So where, where is, where is your, your half brother located? He's in Georgia, south of Atlanta. And when my mother and her husband married, and they were both New Yorkers, for whatever inspired them, they relocated to Atlanta and they opened up a business that manufactured props for the ice shows and big theatrical events. And we're quite, quite successful with it. And then the Atlanta airport expanded and their property was, was taken. So they moved about 50 miles south where, where they bought about 450 acres and erected a 10,000 square foot facility, a studio where they continued to manufacture the props. Now her husband who was 16 years older passed away in 1994. Unfortunately, I didn't begin my search until 2017. And I found that my birth mother passed away in 2014. But I did make contact with that son. And as I said, he had trouble just getting his head around it. What an amazing journey, though. You know, you you said yourself at the beginning of our chat that that you had you had a wonderful child. Your adoptive parents were wonderful. And, you, you know, you apparently didn't want for anything. And then to find out there was this whole other world that, you're, you know, your mother, your, your biological mother, all those years later, what a journey she had. You oh, know? absolutely so. Absolutely so. That would be hard to wrap your brain around just being you, you know, to, to look and see, you know, oh, to see the timeline and, and how, she, how she kept moving up and her 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 path was unfolding before her but now you've you know to find out that you have siblings and what a blessing that you're in close contact with your brother that's just awesome 
It is actually, as I said, I never thought about who my father might have been. And even as I was in this process, I really didn't give it much thought, but I did a DNA test. And the DNA test was really, and this was actually before I began the search, shortly. And all I wanted to know was what my ethnicity was. My adoptive mother came from a Ukrainian family. My adoptive father, Sicilian. And I, I had always sort of hooked on to that Sicilian identity. But I, I just wanted to know. But somewhere in the midst of the early stages of the of the search, my results came back. And I found out that, no, I was not Sicilian. I was mostly Eastern European, a mix of Eastern European and Ashkenazi Jew with some Northern European in there. But then you also get your list back of your thousand closest relatives. Right. <laughs> right. And at, at the top of that list was somebody who by then I knew by name was not related to my birth mother's family. I was sure of that. And it listed him as a probable first cousin or or greater, I think the terminology was. Fortunately, you know, he was a, he is a member of the Church of the Latter-day Saints and he had an extensive family tree online. And I was able to look at that and I saw that he came from a family where he had only one uncle and all the others were, there were six sisters and one brother. And I said, well, if he's my first cousin, that uncle has to be my father. And I reached out to this contact and, and you always hear stories with DNA that you reach out and nobody ever answers you. I got an answer within five minutes, he wrote back and he said, this is really interesting and I'm excited to help you any way I can. So we'll stay in touch. And I sent him back an email telling him what my logic was about his uncle, his uncle Harris. And, and I told him what I knew about where my mother was and her circumstances. And about 10 minutes later, I got another message back from him. And he said, that all makes good sense, except your mother was in San Francisco and uncle Harris never left Texas. And I also noticed that you've got a significant piece of Ashkenazi Jewish DNA. There is none in my uncle's family tree. He said, but I am 25% Jewish as well. And it turned out that this person was my half brother, also my paternal half brother. Oh, wow. So it was, you know, this, this whole journey has just been this serendipitous everything falling into place and you know and, and just kind kind responsive people that is amazing you know and i wonder i'm sure you know with with you know the internet and all of these different sites that you can get on because i i'm in i'm in ancestry.com and i did a mm -hmm. dna test just because i was curious sure you know, and found and I still and I started that a few years ago I don't I'm not putting a lot of time into it but I still get messages every once in a while saying hey here's someone that is more than likely a second cousin or some you know how they word it close relative whatever right. and it's always interesting where you're sitting here going I'll be darned look at that you know because I was surprised by what I found when you know for for my heritage 
um, I had always grown up thinking I was one thing and it turns out I was another. So, right. you know, and it's, it's just interesting to me. It, it doesn't change. It wasn't, you know, life altering or anything, but your journey is something else. And just the way it all played out, um, is amazing. And it, was it smooth or did you, were, did you kind of have, did you continue to have trepidation as you continued finding new things or did you just think, you know, I'm just going to roll with this and see who else I might come across? Oh, no, you know, as I said, once I found out how old my mother was, you know, and what she was doing, it was full steam ahead. There was no trepidation. And, you know, my only concern was if I found her alive and it took some time to find out whether she was still alive or not, you know, what would the impact be on her as she was? And, you know, and how do you, you know, how do you, after almost 70 years, insert yourself into someone's life? And I was very cautious about that, but I, I would have to admit I was much less cautious when it came to my maternal half-brother. And that first he thought, you know, he was concerned he was getting scammed somehow. And that, you know, and that happens. People pop up and, and say, you know, we're brothers and I need a loan or I need a kidney. Right. <laughs> and I, yeah, I didn't need a loan. I didn't need a kidney, but, but I probably plotted in there with him a little bit less cautiously than I, than I would have with, you know, with my mother. But yeah, you know, it was an adventure, you know, and I met so many people. If you permit me, I'll tell you the story of how I really found out about her ice skating career. Once I determined that she had been an ice skater and she had changed her name, she, her birth name was Norowski, which was a good Polish name. As soon as she got to British Columbia, they figured that would not fly in the newspapers. So she changed it to Norris. And then when she got married, she married a man by the name of Ted Meza. So when I finally had those names, I was able to learn more. And I found a blog online from an antiques dealer or a picker down in Atlanta who had been in an auction. And she had pictures of my mother posted online and an image of her first professional contract. And, and this blog explained that I had no idea who this woman was, but it was an interesting period and a, a glamorous period. And so I just bought this box of stuff and it turned to be, you know, a lot of my mother's memorabilia. And I, so I reached out to her. I, I found her on Facebook, sent a message and said, I'm exploring a possible family relationship. By any chance, do you still have this? And this had been an auction that took place probably five, six years before. So I thought an antiques dealer would have broken it up, sold it and, and been all done with it. And she, she messaged me pretty much right back saying, I still have it. Would love to talk to you, but I'm really busy right now. I'll call you later. And after a week passed when she didn't call me, I, I messaged her again and said, don't mean to bother you, but this possible family relationship is my mother. When you have time, please call. And she called back within five minutes and she said, oh my God, I can't believe it. You know, she said, yes, we have it. You need to come here right now. Okay. You know, right now is a six hour <laughs> car ride away. But... So, you know, a week later, my wife and I drove to Atlanta and we, we met with, you know, with this picker and her husband and they become very good friends now. 
And we just went went through this box of memorabilia. And yeah, it was that was a really impactful thing. It was very emotional looking at at you know little news clip snippets that my mother had obviously you know, glued into a, into a scrapbook and, and other photographs. One of the great things that came out of that is there were a stack of photos of other skaters and they turned out to be her, her, her co-performers when she was with Ice Follies right before she left the show to go back to New York to, to sequester herself and and manage her pregnancy, which she did in almost total, total secret. And I was going through there and I said, okay, now if I could find any of these people, maybe they could tell me more about my mother. So I started writing down names and yeah, and the picker's husband said, what are you doing? And I explained and he said, you don't need to do that. He said, you just push the box. He said, this all belongs to you. We've just been holding it. And yeah, so that was just one of the very generous things. And I, I researched, I chased after every name I could find. And, you know, some I just could not locate. You know, some given the ages had, you know, had passed away. But I found one name that it, I could find, I identified the person, could see nothing that said she had passed away. And I, I found a name for a son because I had found the husband's obituary and I wrote him a letter and I told him my story he called me right back and said mom is still alive and I told her about this and she'd love to talk to you and I was I was real excited and he said he said I just have one thing to warn you about I said okay he said mom is in a memory care facility (laughs) and he must have heard me he must have heard the air go out of me and he said, no, no. He said, mom can't remember what she had for breakfast this morning. She will tell you about every minute of 1947. She and I had a lovely, probably hour-long conversation by telephone. And she, she was quite the character. Uh, you know, I sort of started the conversation saying, no, it's really unfair to ask a woman who's 92 to remember what happened in 1947. She said, who told you I'm 92? (laughs) (laughs) And I said, I sort of stopped. She said, I'm 88. As a matter of fact, I'm 85. (laughs) Okay. You know, I wasn't going to argue with anything. And by the time we got to the end of the conversation, yeah, she said, now, how old did you say you are? And I said, well, I'm 69. She said, well, I mean, she said, I'm 65, you know. So actually, uh, that took place probably in June. And in September, my wife and I went out to Minneapolis to go and meet her and spent several hours with her and had a wonderful time out there. And she told us stories. And yeah, the one thing she couldn't tell us, she said, said, I had no idea your mother was pregnant. And she said, so I don't know who she was dating. But by that time, I, I knew. That's amazing. The way it unfolded for you so many colors and feelings and you've got different cultures involved and all the travel and somewhat intrigue you know it's it's what an amazing journey and that you were it's able been to... a constant adventure and it's still it still continues to roll i was going to say and it's more than likely going to continue and it what a blessing that i said earlier that you've been able to connect with so many people especially 
direct relatives. And so that just brings, you know, all these little pieces that are just not random at all. These pieces that are coming into your life. And maybe it's unfolding exactly the way it was meant to. Yeah, I, yeah, we've met with two first cousins at this point. Later on this month, we're going up to New Hampshire for a wedding, but we're going to scoot over to Vermont to, to spend the night with the third first cousin. And you know, we've been in touch. He was the first one in the family that I that I spoke to. And once I got him past the the thought that maybe I was scamming him. Right. He said, I'll send you pictures. And he sent me a thick, thick envelope of photographs from the time that my birth mother was a little girl, you know, two, three years old, right up to, you know, the time that my birth mother's and her husband's kids were born. So, you know, people have just been so utterly generous. It's been a wonderful thing. So, and you what know, a so legacy, what a legacy that you're, you're, you're piecing together. I think, you know, the book that was about to say, you know, is one part, the memoir, it's my journey. It was my, you know, my search, but you know, the second part was originally intended as, okay, here's what I found, but it really did become a tribute to my, to my birth mother. It, you know, it, it captured the legacy, I think, through the time of my birth. And I think it's also, you know, it it became a very sincere homage to her for the way she managed the situation as she did of my birth. Nobody knew with the exception of her eldest sister and her sister's husband, you know, right up through my adoption. And, you know, when I met my cousins, I said, did you have any idea and, you know, we met the two cousins at different times and the third one on the telephone and everyone said the same thing. If anybody in our family knew, the whole damn family. Yeah. Would know. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, she kept it a secret forever. And I, I have the strongest belief that her husband never knew. I think this is just something she took to the grave with her. Yeah, and she sounds like, to me anyway, an amazingly strong woman because she started this journey when she was 17. Absolutely. Well, she started earlier than that. Yeah. Right. Right. And you know, what an amazing, for that time in history, you know, to, to be traveling on her own and then to find herself with child and probably, she probably was carrying some fear, you know, what am I going to do? Oh, absolutely so. You know, and, and then she turns out as her life unfolded, she became quite successful, not only as a skater, but as a business owner. Exactly. What an amazing, what an amazing story she had, her life story. Well, it's, yeah, it's, yeah, this is really her story. It's not mine. Yeah, that's my story becomes secondary, I think, to hers. You know, she's just a, I think, a very strong, very resilient person. You know, at the time of, you know, that she became pregnant, she had choices to make. And, you know, and she could have just faded back into the woodwork, but she, you know, she did what, what she thought was the best for me. And, and she was rewarded for that. Well, and the world at that time also was in complete upheaval. Yeah, absolutely. So absolutely. And, and it was... to be traveling on her own at that time in the midst of World War II, that was probably had to have been frightening as well. I, I would think. 
I would think. I, I very much want to make that same train trip and to do it the way she did, to sit and coach on a train for four days and look out the window. I would like to do it and probably do it next year. That would be another amazing trip. Now, see, you have... You have a series of books in this story. <laughs> I do. Can't, no, you, you can't let it stop at this first one. <laughs> well, yeah, it's, and I've got plans to continue. I'm a little bit, this was, I would not say it was easy, but I knew what the end story was here. And that was my birth and my adoption. My, you know, my next piece is, there's a segment where, you know, she placed me for adoption and came back to New York City 14 years later for her parents' 50th anniversary. And I, I have visions of her reuniting with the, the woman who shepherded her through her pregnancy at the hospital and having the conversation not only about where have you been for 14 years, but you know, but what psychologically have you been dealing with? Because I I really have a firm belief that you know, giving up a child is not a one-time event. It's it's something that stays with you and you're always reminded of. So I want that conversation there, but I just don't know how to end it at that point other than, yep, you're right. Be well and we'll see you soon. Right. <laughs> so <laughs> so I, I need some kind of closure there. You know, I better I need to restructure a little bit, right. but I I've been working on it. I've got about 10,000 words on paper and some of it I'm very pleased with. Some of it I'm kind of perplexed with. And Well, that, I, that's going to be a whole new, that's, you know, a whole new path on your journey. So yeah, still need to know where it goes though. Right. Well, and you'll find it, you'll figure yeah. it out. So as we, as we wrap up here today, Ed, could you let folks know where they can find this amazing book of yours? Yes. The book is the gift best given. And it's widely available. It's available on my website first. And I'd be happy to send out signed and personalized copies. And that's at www.digangiauthor.com. The book is on all of your major websites, Amazon, Barnes and Noble and such, uh, bookstore.com. And... I, I always say, go to your local bookstore. They need your support. Yeah, they really do need your support. And if they don't have it, the book is widely distributed. They can order it for you and get it pretty much in no time. And the book is available both in soft cover and an ebook as well. So awesome. you can download it to your Kindle or your computer. Awesome. Ed, this has been an amazing chat and I'm so pleased that you spent your time with me today to share your amazing story about your beautiful book and what a journey that your birth mother had and a journey that you had finding out all about her. This has just been an awesome conversation. So thank you oh, so wonderful. much. It's been wonderful sharing with you. Thank you for the opportunity. So everybody out there listening, I hope that you enjoyed this episode as much as I enjoyed my time with Ed. So everybody, be well, stay well, and be blessed. This is Kim Langling, your host of Let Fear Bounce.